watchdog or whatever, and they want to tell you how that you ought to live your life, want to tell you how you ought to articulate the truth. They want to tell you how this, that, or the other is taking place, and it does take place. But by and large, in this culture, that happens from people within the congregations. That happens with people who live in our neighborhoods. It's not happening, you know, like the mayors and the governors and the lieutenant governors and, and, and the commissioners and city council people aren't really in that business. State legislature, national legislature aren't really in the business of trying to get it over on, get one over on Christians. All the persecution that we experience in this part of the world is typically internal and it's really not persecution, though it is. I, it is bullying. And that's the greatest persecution that we experience in the church in America today. It's bullying. Bullying. And it looks all manner of things. I mean, it looks, but it always ends up coming from people who claim, get this, who claim, one, to be in Christ Two, to have distinctions or attitudes where they have a divine understanding or a divine eye or ear that's greater than yours so they know right and you're not right. Thirdly, instead of being obedient to the command of Christ in unity and growth, patience and kindness and maturity, they decide to divorce and bring everything down underneath them. Of which is completely, and I hate using this term, but it is a biblical understanding, it is completely demonic. And yes, true believers act that way. <laughs> okay, we have the narrative of Scripture to show us that God's people, men, women, and children, can do godless things. But that God is sovereign over those godless things. And Paul sort of goes really quick to Timothy in the second letter. You know, when, he is, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So suffering for righteousness. People are going to utter kinds of evil for you, falsely on my account. But they think they're doing the work of God, you see. That was the persecution of Jesus and the disciples. The people who thought they were doing the work of God were persecuting those people. And they were making all sorts of trouble for them, thinking that they were cleansing the spiritual culture or the religious culture of these vile people, Jesus. Peter says the same thing in his first epistle. I think I read this last week, but we suffer for what is right and that it's a blessing. Matter of fact, go to 1 Peter. We'll spend some time there this morning. We'll spend some time there. at chapter 3, starting in verse, well, I don't want to say what verse. Let me look first. I may back up. Verse 13. Let's read that. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Back up to verse 8. <laughs> Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Now, see, persecutors will say, yes, Unity of mind, we've got to think exactly the same way. No, it's not talking about our thoughts and understanding. We grow and we ebb and flow in those things. Differences will come, and Paul says very clearly, differences must come that we may discern who are and who are not in the faith. And it's not because of whether or not we have the same ideas and not be different. It's that we settle those differences according to the gospel so the differences come that we may see who are in the faith by the way they resolve the differences <laughs> until the differences come again and then we resolve it so it's the it's the reconciliation the good news is about reconciliation not, not academics so unity of mind all of these things sympathy brotherly love a tender heart let me pause there for a minute. I was taught directly in private meetings and conversations when I was in my 20s, entering into the ministry. What you want to look for, James, is these really bold, strong people that have it all together, type A type people. 
What you don't want to do is find these people who are really needy or hypersensitive or emotional, what we would call EGRs, extra grace required. I'm not kidding. That was a literal thing taught to me. And over several years, it's one of the, and I was like, I'm the EGR, and I'm pretending not to be. A tender heart is the heart of God. Brotherly love, kindness, humility, a humble mind is the mind of Christ. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not revile for revile, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. My skin is tingling here. My spider senses are on edge. My hair is standing up on the back of my neck. Because that indicts me with gravity. Because I am not that person. But I lay in that place more than I really want to give myself credit for. But I can't give myself credit for because my Brotherly love and tenderness and humility is no such thing. You see the, you see the struggle? Some people like, what are you talking about? We need to see Christ there. And we need to see ourselves in Christ. Therefore, we have true glasses to see others. We filter others through what Christ is for us. We will be these things until we stop looking through the right lens. And there's no perfection here. And look at this, verse 10, look at this poem. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies. I can't say deceit because, you know, in my kid it said lies. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in the context of this, this evil is the lack of humility, the lack of brotherly love, the lack of tender heart, the lack of a humble mind, the lack of sympathy, and the lack of unity. First John, ring a bell. And so, yeah, people get a lot of headache, a lot of pushback. Oh, you're just trying to be this lovey-dovey guy. I want to be. But because so many so many things in the name of love have come and put in another Christ. We've thrown the attitude and the mind of Christ out with the bathwater because we're so scared of being aligned with people who don't know the truth. Well, beloved, the Bible would tell us that if we do know the truth and that we don't have love and tenderness and humility, that we're a liar. About what? That we understand the truth. John doesn't say, you're lost. You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament in any kind of application. You're lost and you're saved. No, those are words that we created. Those are ideas that we created in trying to placate our own conscience about how we identify each other and put labels and names on each other. Are you in the faith? Do you believe the Christ of the Bible? Has God opened your heart and mind to rest in the sufficiency of Christ? Yes. Praise God. Let me teach you what that means over time. It's not about perfection in our understanding. It's about God's presence and power in our person. Because of the position that we stand in Christ before him today. Now, verse 13. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? Who's there to harm you? I mean, if you're always seeking to do good, who's going to harm you? I mean, you think about that. This is what's been so strange to me through the years. Even as a child, I remember times where I was trying to do something good. Somebody else didn't like it because my attempt in doing something good was to boss them around. <laughs> you know, well, I know what's good for everybody. Let me boss them around. And then my brothers, we get into a fight and then we get in trouble trying to do good. We got into a fight. It happens. 
So there's an imperfect thing there. Motivation does not make good. Motivation is just the fuel for what you do. Sometimes what you do is not good. It's not right. It's not prudent. It's not wise. We have to learn in that. But in verse 14 it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as set apart, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that good be God's will, than for doing evil. So you see the context of suffering, of being persecuted? This is where we are in the Church of America. It's not this grand scheme of persecution. I'll talk about that in a minute when I just sort of boot it off the stage. I won't do a Judy kick because... I did that one time and offended somebody. Shoe fell off. Yeah. But in this, then he goes on to say in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous Christ for the unrighteous us, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This metaphor, these metaphors explain something that our righteousness is because we have been submerged in the vessel in the ark who is Jesus Christ and so our sin has been put into Christ Christ as the ark has been crucified in our stay and then raised to life so we were in him in his death now we're in him in his life you see the difference it's just a it's just a transportation issue judicially and spiritually the Ark is Jesus. The Ark of the Covenant is Jesus. We watched Raiders of the Lost Ark last night, 1981. Good. It's interesting because we love to get tangled up in the types and shadows. We love to get tangled up in the metaphors. We love to get tangled up in the, the liturgy and the practices of righteousness, but we are scared to really rest in the person of righteousness. Now think about that for a second. Because when we rest in the person of righteousness, who is Jesus Christ, we're doing nothing. God shut the door. He sealed us in. There's no way out or in. The work is done. The floods are coming. The wrath of God is satisfied. And we are in the ark. We are safe. Nothing shall, nothing shall satisfy God's wrath except that wrath and justice being poured out on sin. Jesus Christ drowned in the wrath of God that we might not. kept us from the wrath of God, from righteousness, from justice. And because we are in him still, we are credited for his righteousness because our debt is paid. So we're going to be persecuted for righteousness when we rest. Not when our theology is all messed up or our lingo is messed up or our definitions. And I know I bring that up, but beloved, it's, it's a it's terrible. I don't even know what to say. It's a, it's, an, it's a pandemic in every corner of the world that I know of. Everybody's arguing over everything. And if I've seen one, I've seen 50 billion people try to tell you that they share everything that's wrong about every wrong thing they can find related to the faith. Have you seen that Pastor PBJ? Look at this 60-minute video of this nonsense. Look at it! That's less than that's nonsense. It's just wicked. Blocking. Well, you just sent him to me. I'm blocking. I sent him to 5,000 more people. What's the gospel? You know what the gospel is. Don't look at this. Listen, that man say he's not the gospel. Well, I don't care the not gospel is not the way that Jesus teaches the gospel. I think it's a fallacy. 
defining things by what they're not is immature and ignorant. Because you don't want to do the work to rest in the truth. You'd rather do the work of saying what isn't. And it doesn't take a PhD to learn that. Though you will learn it. <laughs> All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Paul tells Timothy that. 2 Timothy 3.12. So suffering for righteousness will happen. We will share in Christ's suffering. Romans 8. We're going to share in the suffering of Christ. James chapter 1 says that we will face trials of various kinds. Paul tells the church of Philippi in chapter 3, sharing in Christ's suffering that we may become like him. He tells the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1.5 that Christ's sufferings will overflow to believers. We will suffer, but we will what? We will rejoice. Why? Because of God's grace. 2 Peter 4, right here. Verse 12, look at it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, I forgot that. Many times through the years. Why is this happening to me? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever thought that? Why is this happening to me? Why am I having such a bad day? Why are these people so mean? What have I done? Nothing. Sometimes. Like I said, I've got something to kick off the stage here in an hour or a half. So. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, when he's shown for who he is, because you will be seen for who you are. You want vindication? Patiently suffer. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. I mean, I've had that. I've had people of other religions get in my face and literally push every physical, tactical button in my body. I had one man poked me in the chest like four times and he was yeah that, that look so you know me I mean I just don't do that and if it weren't for the big boys standing beside me like bodyguards that sort of grabbed my shoulders and said pastor we got to go preach you got to go preach service is about to start I probably would have gone to jail and I'm not saying that that's horrible but when I was 26 when you poked me in my chest put your finger in my face and you flicked me and you you know, Kung Fu just took over. <laughs> and it's horrible. Thank God I didn't touch that guy. That's not what Christ did. Christ didn't even talk smartly to his persecutors. He just, as you say. He did say, Pilate, you know. <laughs> you say my life is in your hands, but honestly... I gave it to you, and I'm going to raise it up again, too. And Pilate didn't argue with him, but Pilate had to do what was right according to the politics because that's what God had ordained so that Christ would die. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. I've had people literally take my Bible and throw it sitting by myself at a coffee shop, and they'd come up and take my Bible and throw it. We don't allow fiction in here. Wanting to get a rise out of me. You know, 12 people over there in the corner filming. Oh, man. Thank you. I needed to dust my Bible off. And inside I'm going, murder. Uh, yeah. But that was the end of that. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. So had I gotten up and gotten in the face of these people, had we retaliated, had we gotten on Facebook and social media like, well, I'm going to tell you the truth about this, booga, 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 and just done our due diligence to justify ourselves, we would no longer be suffering for righteousness' sake. We would be suffering for self-vindication. You see the difference? Oh, my goodness, it's so simple, but why is it so hard for a guy like me or people like us sometimes to get that? Or worse, know what the actions ought to be, but can't get over the, the desire and the passion to really make things right. And it happens in almost any relationship we have, doesn't it? And if a thousand people love us and one person wants to tear us up, 
All we can do sometimes is think about that one. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. What the world, Paul? I mean, Peter. What is, I mean, the murderer, you know, warlord, meddler. <laughs> I mean, that's a 1960s Batman villain there, the meddler. What is that? That's somebody putting their mind and time into somebody else's business. That's somebody going over here and talking truth or lies about somebody else that's not in the room. That's somebody that's taken upon themselves to be concerned to let you live rent-free in their minds to the point where they want to control the narrative about you, around you, without you. So put that little puzzle in there. A meddler. I love it. Peter's like, evildoer, murderer, thief, meddler. I mean, you've got, in the Marvel world, you've got Thanos trying to snap away half the universe and the meddler. Who do you think they're going to bother their time with? And the meddler, he just littered. <laughs> He's talking trash about my mama. I know the world's about to end, but I'm not going to put up with that. I mean, these are serious things. Peter says that a meddler is on line with a murderer. The scripture, Paul would even teach that a person who is a meddler is a murderer. When they speak, when they send letters, when they make phone calls, when they talk. And we've been talking since the garden. Yet if anyone suffers as a follower of Christ, verse 16, let him not be ashamed. Oh, it's so hard to teach the truth here and stay focused because I just want to get on the what isn't Christian. You see what I'm saying? So bad. Anyone suffers as a Christian, gentle, humble, quiet, to themselves, worshipers, serving each other, loving each other, not standing publicly, not speaking out against it, not blah, 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 all this kind of stuff that so many Christians think that they're doing in the name of Christ, but they're actually disobeying in every breath everything Christ tells us to do. So, but if we do suffer as a follower, that's what the word Christian means, follower of Christ. So if you do suffer, if anyone does suffer as emulating, that's going to be the last six points of the sermon, emulating the life of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. See, that empowers people. That empowers people who have yet not, <laughs> what we talked about this morning, who are not elders, nor qualified, nor have been proven to be qualified to be elders, but they are surely going to oversee your life. And the lives of their neighbors. And tell everybody whatever they, and even the elders aren't qualified to make judgment in that context, are they? We're supposed to patiently, quietly, we don't, we can't lord over people. We're not lords, we're sheep. We have a task to present the scripture. But yet I have gotten in my oratorial persona, I'm sure I've pushed so many people towards so many things just because of zeal. And it's not purposeful. It just comes out of my head. Rather than just teaching and letting the Lord do the work. Because who am I when I'm not doing half this stuff right anyway? Half. I'm so funny. But it's true. I'm not even doing half of it. And some people say, well, I am. No, you're not. By the very mere fact that you could say that, you're not. See, we're not. Our righteousness is not in us being. Because I could be sweet and humble for the next 20 years and in one minute fly off the handle. Guess what? I'm flying off the handle. I'm angry. And I'm no longer sweet and gentle. Most of the time, well, most of the time, it's not all of the time. If I've got a criminal record from 30 years ago, I'm still a criminal. Even if it's expunged, where well, there's no record, I'm <laughs> still a criminal. So nobody can stand here and boast. And we shouldn't be sitting here and be broken either. Oh, it's so bad. 
we should stand bold. There's three B's for you. We should stand boldly in the throne of grace with great confidence. Papa, my father, my dad is the God of glory. Jesus as my brother, I am in him. And if judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Isn't that funny? It's all about the gospel. It's all about believing and resting in the sufficiency of Christ and his humility. And then the outcome, the living of that, is a continual work. So if the righteous is scaredly saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. And then Peter begins to speak to the pastors of the church. He says, verse five, chapter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. We don't have to do this. Willingly. We want to do this. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering, but being examples. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. Just like everybody under you, under your care. All of you will. Likewise, you guys who are younger, you people who are younger, you girls who are younger, be subject to those who oversee you. Clothe yourselves, all of you. With all humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on himself. Because he cares for you. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to chew up. To devour. To maul. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the entire world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, does this sound like cultural Christianity to you? No. It's part of the Christian life. And God's grace carries us all the way through. So what does it mean to suffer for the faith? What, is it, what are the benefits of suffering? And how do we overcome the pain and understand the purpose? Three quick things. And then I'm going to spend a little more time on the last one. Being persecuted for righteousness, as I've just described, includes embracing the trials as part of our spiritual growth. And I'll give a little, little lesson here. We, we try to stay away from the terminology sometimes that has been muddled. So a lot of times people say, well, this is sanctification. We're growing. Well, let's just say growing and maturing and trying to not use sanctification as a process. Some people use the term in two ways, but it's gotten so clouded that some people have even thought, we well, you know you're going to grow and one day you're going to stand personally holy in the context of your maturing. No, you're not. Our righteousness is imputed. It's an alien righteousness. It's not ours. It's credited to us. And though we may be doing very well, we're not Jesus. You see? So we're maturing. So our hope is never in how well we're doing. Our hope is in what Christ finished. And we're thankful for that. And it does motivate us to do well. And we should mature and grow. And we should be patient with those who aren't growing at the same rate we are. And we will suffer in different ways. Personal persecution. We will suffer in society, cultural opposition. We will suffer inwardly, emotional, and spiritually. And I've talked a lot about that this summer. But why? We looked at these last week. Why is suffering good? Because it refines our faith. It grows us. It develops perseverance. This is just a review from last week. It allows us to see Christ in a more intimate way as we grow and participate in the suffering of Christ. It allows us to witness to and to serve other people 
demonstrating our faith in the Lord and our love toward each other in the midst of chaos, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. And if you weren't here last week, you didn't hear that sermon, please listen to it. And then overcoming the pain through the understanding of the purpose, we need to recognize three specific things, and then I want to talk about the suffering of Christ and the purposes of Christ's suffering. But three specific things we need to keep in mind when we think about the purpose, understanding the purpose of our persecution. It's temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's greater, an eternal weight of glory. It outweighs the current suffering. Romans chapter 8, same thing. For I count these present sufferings not as hardly anything, but the future glory as sons and daughters and children adopted in Christ. We will see it, the whole creation moans. These are, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, light momentary afflictions. And the purpose of learning to lean on God, to trust in Him, to rest in Him for our strength. God's power is made perfect in weakness, Paul says to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Why? Because, I mean, if we think we're picking this stuff up and carrying it, then we're going to be sufficient, self-sufficient, rather than completely dependent upon the Lord. Together, we are to encourage one another. So understanding the purpose of suffering, we are able to walk with others. There are areas of my life that I've realized that I have brought self-inflicted suffering upon myself, obviously by the name, and others. And I'm looking forward to the time in the near future where I can begin to teach about that as someone who has experienced it. I think I talked about a little last week that when we go through things, we're a lot better equipped to help others go through those things rather than just having a few short bullet points or talking points. Well, I'm ready. But Christ suffered. And in all of these things, we really do not need to lose sight over the suffering of Christ. Suffering of Christ and its purpose, we see it seven things quickly. is that the scripture prophesied the suffering of Christ. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That's the question. It is, must be this way. Christ suffered because it was prophesied that he would. It was fulfilled in the promise of God from the garden, from creation, which is the point of Genesis, is to show the gospel, not science. For the sins of humanity was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And it's so troublesome sometimes. People hear me say that, oh, humanity, that's all inclusive. No, it's not. Why does that bother so many people? To know the application of God's sovereignty in electing his people and saving them through the sufficiency of the death and the life of Christ. Why can't we just say what the Bible says and quit trying to articulate all the distinctions every time something's written? Is the word of God not enough? Yes, it is. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. The suffering of Christ and his purpose reveals God's righteousness and love. God, Romans 3, we haven't used Romans 3 in a couple of weeks, man. What's wrong with us? We've got to get to John 3 after this. I'll get to both of them right now. In Romans 3, what does it say? God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, Paul says. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In John 3, for God loved the world in this way that he gave the only son that he had, that all the believing ones in him would not perish but have eternal life. Why? Christ had to suffer for that to establish a new covenant. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. 
this picture that we do every week of the body and the bread of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. To be reminded of the gospel. That no matter what we're having to deal with, whether we're having to get up here and talk about something completely extra biblical as the Bible applies to it. I don't know what that would be, but you never know. We will always finish our time of worship with the gospel of grace through the observance of the Lord's table that God has established a covenant with his people, a promise and a contract that has been paid and signed and sealed, and it's irrevocable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Christ suffered for that purpose. Christ suffered for the purpose of being rejected and misunderstood by his own people. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But all who did receive him, that is, who were born of his born and, 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 and brought to life, were what? Done by the will of God. John 1. And we see that played out in all the chapters of John. Every dialogue, every conversation, we see that being played out. And he began to teach them, Jesus... Mark wrote this in his gospel account, chapter 8. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So you see that? I mean, the first church was persecuted by the church, by the culture, by the politics of religion. And that's the purpose for which Christ came, that he would be rejected by his own. The purpose of Christ's suffering was the sovereign plan of God. This Jesus delivered up, Dr. Luke says, according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hand, actually that's Stephen, by the hands of lawless men, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 4, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And Jesus, as I said last week in part, came to suffer and to be persecuted so that he may be an example to emulate in suffering for righteousness. For to this you have been called, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. I read that to us last week. So the persecution of Jesus. How should we see it and how should we consider our own in kind? Well, it fulfills God's will and purpose. Jesus consistently sought to fulfill the will of the Father. So when we consistently, according to the Scripture, not the culture, not the history, not, the, you know, not our grandparents, our parents, and our spouses, but according to the Scripture, when we fulfill and seek to fulfill the will of the Father and of the Word of God, we're going to be persecuted. So we must align ourselves with God's purposes. Why can't I speak today? possibly leading to misunderstanding and opposition, but we show a contentment to a higher calling, right? doesn't mean we're not going to suffer, not going to be pained, or not going to be mentally anguished, depressed, or even ill or fearful, but we're going to know that there's a higher calling. Suffering for the sins of others. Jesus suffered for the sins of others. Will we? We can't atone for the sins of others. We can extend forgiveness, grace, compassion. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we show sympathy? What happens when we show forgiveness? Some people go, no. You're wrong. Can't believe you would forgive them for doing that. And that's okay. Every person has the right to or to not forgive. But it's weird to me when we suffer when we do. But we do. Have you ever had a friend get upset with you because you forgave someone else who treated you badly? I understand it. I've been on both sides of that. Why would you, why would you be back in a relationship with that person? Why would you do that? Why? Forgiveness doesn't always mean complete reconciliation in every part of life. 
But forgiveness is releasing someone from their harm. We emulate Christ. Christ revealed God's righteousness. We can do the same. We can strive to live lives of integrity, love, compassion. We can reflect the mind of Christ and the character of God even when we're ridiculed for it. Christ suffered and was persecuted because in that he was establishing a new covenant, a new relationship. We can do the same thing. We can strive to live lives marked in this way, as I've already said. And then in doing so, we participate in this covenant by living faithful to the commandments of Christ. We foster authenticity in our relationships, facing things good and bad, being honest with each other, saying that is not good. We, we posture too much in the South being polite. Politeness is not righteous when it's not real. You know what's called? Deceit. It's called hypocrisy. The word hypocrite is actor. It's okay to say, that was mean, and you hurt my feelings. Isn't that better than, oh, bless your soul, and then worrying about it for six years? The purpose of Christ's suffering, we also shall see and emulate, is facing rejection and misunderstanding. We'll face rejection, rejection when standing up for the truth and for justice. But we can persist in faithfulness and humility. And I know everybody's got their ideas of what that looks like in what context. But we are only talking about the context for which Jesus was persecuted. And then finally, the last two things, embracing the sovereignty of God. That means we can trust him in all circumstances and follow his guidance even when it is absolutely terrorizing. And in doing so, we live as an example of righteousness. Christ suffered righteously without retaliation, without cynicism, without bitterness. That's been one of the biggest concerns that I've had. One of the biggest worries is that I would become cynical. And by the mercy of God, I'm not cynical today. But life is the architect of cynicism. Experience in this world is like the blueprint for bitterness. But the righteousness of Christ, you even try and you can't. We can suffer with dignity and with grace. We can reflect the mind and the character of Christ and use suffering as an opportunity to just display the power of God. And this is all biblical. As Christians, we need to understand that the Scripture teaches us these things. And that we need to theologically be committed to justice and Righteousness and goodness and holiness, even when it leads to personal loss and pain. Persecution is related to the concept of maturity, sometimes wrongly written or wrongly understood as progressive sanctification. We don't, we don't use that term. It's maturing is a better way of saying it. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but it's, just, it's gotten so confusing for so many people. We're trying to clarify it. Because it does require a process of being shaped and refined in Christ's likeness, maturing. And that has everything to do with how we relate to the world around us and the people in the world. So what is that application? What are we going to do as we finish this up today? What are we supposed to take and put in the list of our minds and be contemplating? Well, personal integrity, ethical, living, morality. We need to uphold moral standards personally. Not point fingers at everybody else who's not doing everything right. That's not our business. Stop. We can't do that. That's not being Christ-like in the world to say, ooh, look at all the, ooh, look at all the, ooh. No, we want to show Christ. So let's show Christ. We need to uphold these principles in our professional life, in our personal life. When it leads to criticism or loss of income, we need to stand on them. That's why it's personal. When people see it in us and they don't like what they see 
and it cost us. Not when we get in people's face and try to make them see our way. This is not the call of us. What does it look like? Well, we don't engage in dishonest practices. We don't skirt gray areas. Social justice, the second thing, application and advocacy. Oh, that's a terrible word, social justice. That's what justice is. It's a social issue. But more importantly, it's not always about law breaking. It's about treatment. And morally and ethically, as Christians who have been given the grace of God, we have a responsibility to be on the lookout for marginalized people, for people who are not treated fairly. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this and go on record and go ahead and burn it all down if we want to. But, beloved, women are marginalized in the United States of America and in the world. Misogyny and sexism is so deeply rooted that you can't see it because it's so natural a part of the world. Systemic racism. And I'm not talking about biases. Biases are birthed from this. This is, this is being perpetrated and continued by people in the church, by the church, by the institution of denominations. Just look at the news for once. It's there. We need to stand up for the rights of the poor. We need to stand up for the rights of the marginalized. We need to stand up and use whatever opportunity we have to speak into the society that we live in to say this isn't right we don't have to put our fingers in the air and our fists in the air and say because of the in Jesus name the world can't see that it's just not right period what does that mean we have influence in our lives we need to exercise that influence if I have a helicopter and an island is burning to the ground and I don't rescue people there's a problem I just get out of there, fly above, and watch it all burn. Man, I'm glad I'm not down there. I'm glad I got this helicopter. I mean, that's not, that's not good. We're going to face resistance from people who benefit from the status quo. And I'm not saying that the church's job is to be involved in social justice. But we as individuals, as Christians, ought to be involved as it touches us, as we see it have conversations about it and begin to make church discipline a matter that includes that. Correction. Faithfulness and spiritual practices and beliefs. We need to maintain faith and spiritual practices. We need to hold fast to the confession of our hope. We need to continue to gather for worship. We need to hold fast to the theology that we believe even when the environment is hostile. And it's tough, and the hostility comes from within sometimes, doesn't it? Most of the time, from my experience, it's always come from within. Somebody throwing my Bible or getting in my face or trying to provoke me doesn't do anything because it's over if I don't fight back. But that persistent persecution, that persistent suffering can come very easily and longstanding in the church. Emotional and spiritual resilience. There's an application for you. And I've been talking a lot about that over the summer as well. You may not have caught on, but we are to renew our minds. We are to check our hearts. We are to always be about looking at our affections, what pulls us and pushes us to where we are in everyday life. What is it that pulled and pushed Christ? It was the will of the Father. It was his desire to always see the will of the Father. And when we do understand that this is part of our application as Christians, we find strength, hope, and resilience in the example of Christ because of the promises of God. And so our anxiety begins to wane. Our fear begins to be less prominent. Our depression is short-lived. It's not that we're going to never have these things, but we're going to be short-lived. So you go from where March the 5th, I was having panic attack after panic attack every 30 minutes this year to now I can feel anxiety in about four seconds I can find it in my body before it ever hits my thoughts in God's word Psalm 40 
brought me there and a whole lot of therapy. A whole lot. Two hours a week. Remember I said that last week? What does it do? It's tools. I learned to do carpentry because master carpenters took me under the wing and taught me. I learned to play saxophone because master saxophone, which she's actually a clarinetist, took me under her wing and taught me. World-renowned. We need the help where it's there. We need the help from the experts. The Word of God gives us that freedom and that liberty. Resilience. We draw on spiritual resources. We learn to meditate on God's Word. We learn to pray effectively, not desperately, hoping and wondering we pray confidently. That's a better word. We can pray desperately, but we do so confidently. In the world, and even the therapeutic world, people don't understand that. If we're not in the faith, people can't grasp that. They can't understand how a passage of Scripture can give us hope. But it does. But we'd be fools to ignore the physical and the emotional aspect of our lives as human beings, as organic beings, as thinking beings, when the Bible is replete with constant reminders of transforming our thoughts. Nowhere does it say become a theologian or get all of these things right. Nowhere does it say go to seminary. Nowhere does it say to do these things. Do them. That's fine. Not a big deal. But it's not going to give you the tools you need to live as a Christian. What we're doing today is the springboard into Christian living. Every Sunday when we gather together, it's just another jump on the springboard. You get to decide where you're going to jump. You get to decide how you're going to spring forward. You get to decide where you're going to land and where you're going to walk. You get to decide the disciplines that will take you through this week. Our witness and our testimony. We can use persecution and suffering as an opportunity to bear witness to the love of Christ, to the truth of Christ. As Peter just told us, have no fear of them, chapter 3, verse 14, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, here it is, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Isn't that the way it works? When everything's done, when the wind's done, whatever remains standing, is standing. When the fire's burned, whatever remains is there. 1 Corinthians pops into my mind when I say stuff like that. And Paul, and he has a lot to say about the foundations but how many times have you all heard that always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you as an evangelistic shot in the arm? And now go out there and scream at the corners of the 